And we're going to look at verses 12 through 30 this morning of John chapter 8. And I'm going to read the passage here to begin. So if you follow with me as I read John chapter 8, starting in verse 12, we're going to read all the way through verse 30. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself, since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just as I have been telling you from the beginning, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. This is a life and death situation. We, we tend to use that phrase in our communication when it comes to serious and important matters. We, we use these words when we're emphasizing what, what, what's about to happen or what's going to happen is of great importance. Sometimes in our world it refers to life's decisions, a good decision or a, pro, or a poor one, and sometimes it, it means what it means. You will either live or you'll die. This morning in this passage, Jesus is presenting to the Jewish audience a, a true life or death choice. They should believe in Christ and live, or they will reject Christ and die. You have the same decision this morning as you sit here. You can choose life or you can choose death. And, and in this passage, you'll see it's a time-oriented decision. You, you don't have unlimited amount of days to choose it's urgent. Jesus is urgent. And an incredible thing about Jesus throughout this passage, and for that matter, throughout the Gospel of John, he doesn't leave you without any evidence of who he is and what he says. He gives the evidence to make a wise decision. He gives the information you need to make the right decision. And I want to show you that this morning as we walk through these verses. We're going to cover two main points as we look at verses 12 through 30. First, the divine nature of Jesus Christ from verse 12 through verse 20, and then the divine mission of Jesus Christ, verses 21 through 30. But before I do, would you join me in prayer? Father, we come before your throne this morning because we need you. I need you. I need your help this morning, God, to speak clearly. Father, we need your help to, to listen to hear what your word says, to see it, to read it. Father, I pray as we, we come before your word this morning that our minds and our hearts will be focused on you and, and not on other things. Give us clarity this morning, God. I pray that we will be different as a result of hearing your word read, hearing your word preached, May you be honored and glorified in all that happens here. 
And we thank you for the privilege that we have, the freedom that we have to come into this place and to worship and to learn and to grow. Help us, cause us to become more like Jesus Christ in our time here this morning. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. The first thing I want you to see is the divine nature of Jesus Christ. And when I, word, when I use the word divine, we intend a meaning something that's altogether separate. It's He's godly, he's holy, and Jesus is all of these things. He's incredibly different than, than us, different than any other human that's ever walked on planet Earth. Jesus is God in the flesh. And this is the message of the Gospel of John, when he, and he wants his readers to understand, to believe this. Jesus is different. He's not just a man, he's God. He's the light of the world, as we looked at last week. And there's all sorts of false lights in this world, but only one true light that can bring life, and it's Jesus Christ. And as we jump into the story, we find out the Pharisees didn't respond well to, to Jesus' proclamation of verse 12, of him being the light of the world. Look at their reaction, verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, you're, you're bearing witness about yourself, and your testimony is not true. They're, they're bothered by Jesus' proclamation in verse 12. In fact, they're emphatic. They're, they're saying, you're, you're just talking about yourself without anyone to confirm it to be true. So, so we reject this. It, it's not true, it's, it's not genuine. What you say, Jesus, has no real value. And if you remember all the way back in chapter five, Jesus had discussed this issue of, of witnesses and needing a second witness to verify things. And, and then they, they accepted what Jesus taught here, but, but throughout, they refused the witnesses that Jesus would again bring before them, whether it's John the Baptist that would testify him or his works or God the Father or the scriptures, they would reject it. To them, it was all pointless in their minds. They weren't interested in being convinced. And Jesus responds to their challenge. He says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I come from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. And he, he's displaying his divinity to them. He knows where he came from, where he's going. He is our missionary Messiah. In verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. They, the Pharisees, judge according to the outside, the external appearance of what they can see and what they can hear. And Jesus is altogether different than them. He, he sees their heart. He knows what's going on inside of man. God's judgment is always right because he has all the facts. His judgment is true, it's genuine, it's of real value. And Jesus is beginning to show them again the reason for him coming to earth, that he was sent. And the Pharisees do not understand this. They, they estimate Jesus and his mission according to only what they have seen with their eyes and their limited knowledge. And furthermore, they judge from the wrong standard. They lack the ability to see any beauty in Jesus and what he has come to do. They've already come to the conclusion that Jesus is an imposter, that he's a liar, and they have dismissed him. Jesus says in verse 17, in your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They wanted a witness, and Jesus supplies a witness for them, himself and the Father. You know, if Jesus really stands in, a, in the relationship to God in which he says he does, then no simple man is in position to, to question it. But they do. They question him. They do not believe Jesus, and they reject him. And it's striking. It's shocking, actually. If you read the Old Testament, this is shocking. This should be. William Barclay writes, the whole history of Israel was so designed that the Jews should have recognized the Son of God when he came. All their history was leading up to that coming. But they had become so involved with their own ideas, so intent on their own way, so sure of their own conception of what religion was, that they had become blind to God. It's striking words here. They should have recognized the Messiah. They should have seen him and followed him. They should have known that Jesus was the one because they should have set their hearts on following God and looking 
but they missed it. Instead, they wanted to choose who their Messiah would be. Crazy to think about, but that's what they wanted. They wanted to choose their Messiah. They wanted to select the man that would come and fit into their mold of what the rescuer would do and, and how he would come, right? And, and what he would say and how he would dress. And it, it's, it's like those choose your own adventure stories that you read as a kid, right? Did you ever read those? Where you get to a certain point, it's like choose which way you want to go. That's how they looked at life. They wanted to go their own way. They wanted to pick what would happen next, and they wanted to choose a Messiah that would fit their agenda. They wanted someone to fit their ideals. And they, they were unwilling to be wrong in their life's pursuit of their religion. Isn't it true in our world today? Doesn't that happen here? Doesn't our world judge also according to the flesh when it comes to selecting a Messiah for themselves? Especially if you're devoted to a, a specific political or social or personal agenda. And, and therefore those, those ideals have to fit. You know, I'm gonna build my life on this instead of what the Bible says is important and a priority. And the world says they're looking for a Messiah. They're, they're looking for someone to help. They're looking for someone to rescue them. All the while, Jesus is standing there saying, I'm here. And the main problem with the biblical Jesus is that he offends every earthly perspective on how life should be lived. He offends us. Which is why as humans, we, when we bring our agendas into us, when we're confronted with the truth claims of the Savior, they, they reject him because he doesn't fit into their plan. We, we don't get to choose who Jesus is or who the Savior is. He is the great I am. Jesus didn't look like the Pharisees. He, he didn't dress like them, he didn't act like them, he didn't treat people the same way they did, he didn't promise salvation the way that they wanted, he didn't come to meet all the felt needs of the Pharisees, and he didn't come to meet all of our felt needs in life. Jesus didn't come to advance our agenda. He didn't come to make all of our wildest dreams come true. He didn't come to make our best life now. It's not true. He came to give real life. Do you want real life? You know, the Pharisees didn't. And you can read it in the next verse there, verse 19, because they're beginning to harden their hearts. Verse 19, they said to them, therefore, where's your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And their question about his father was not an innocent one, it, I believe a sarcastic one. Oh yeah? Yeah, Jesus, you got a witness? Where's your father? Why don't, why don't you supply this witness? We're looking around, we don't see him. And in their question, they're admitting that they really don't know who Jesus truly is. These are sobering words for the, for the Pharisees here and their rejection of Jesus. They, they have their Messiah right in front of them and they reject him. Jesus responds, says, you, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And the truth has been brought to bear right now in their lives. The, the Pharisees do not know God the Father. They do not know God. Jesus is not talking about an intellectual agreement of God. He's not saying that they don't know of God or ever heard of God. When he says that they do not know God the Father, he's saying that they do not have any firsthand knowledge of him. They don't have any experience with, with God. They know of him, but they don't know him. I know of John MacArthur. In fact, I've met him once, shook his hand at a conference. 
but I don't know him. He doesn't know me. I only know of him. But when I met God, I met him through Jesus Christ. And I learned who God the Father was through Jesus. And he knows me. And in this verse, to know God is to know Jesus. The only way to know God is to know Jesus. John 14, 6 and 7, Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you, you do know him and have seen him. To, to know Jesus is to know God. If you're ignorant about Jesus Christ, you're most definitely ignorant about God. J.C. Ryle, writing his commentary, John says, those that reject Christ like the Jews will live and die in ignorance of God, however learned and clever they may be. But the poorest, humblest man that lays hold on Christ and begins with him shall find out enough about God to make him happy forever. We know God through Jesus Christ. And verse 20 gives us the setting and where this entire discussion is happening. It says, he spoke these words in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. All this is happening in the temple right in front of the candelabra that I mentioned last week, right in front of the, the light there to, to illuminate the temple, Jesus proclaims, I am the light of the world and continues on. And John says it's in the treasury which is where the offerings were made and where they were kept. But what was the reaction of the Pharisees once Jesus started making his claims and then accusations against them? Well, John says no one touched him. No one, no one laid a, a hand on him. Why? Is he slippery? Why, why did no one touch him? His time had not yet come. One commentator said, a divine restraint was laid on our Lord's enemies. They had the will to hurt, but not the power. Which, for us here today, you are immortal until the time God says, you come home. You cannot die any sooner than God says, it's time for you to come. You're immortal. So in the midst of life and the difficulties and the struggles you're in, just realize that God is in charge of your life, not anyone else or anything else. No one would touch Jesus Christ until God said it was time. And the Pharisees continued to, to want to know who this Jesus is so that they can properly dismiss him. You know, why did he... Why did he had the right to talk the way that he did and do the things that he did. And why, why is Jesus again being blunt to them? It's because they don't, they don't understand. They have a desire to understand. They don't see it. They're blind. They don't believe that Jesus is God. They don't believe that Jesus was sent by God on a mission. They deny it. It's too much to believe. And they're blind to the divinity of Jesus. And in their blindness, they miss why he came. They miss it. Which leads to the second point this morning, the divine mission of Jesus Christ. We have a missionary God. He has not left our world without a witness. He has not left our world without hope. John three sixteen and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God not, did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God sent his son. This is a theme throughout the gospel of John. It's a theme throughout this passage, just in these, these number of verses here. Verse 16, the father who sent me. Verse 18, the father who sent me bears witness about me. Verse 26, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. In verse 29, and he who sent me is with me, he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus was sent by the Father on a mission. He had a purpose in coming earth. And in that purpose, there was a time factor. 
there was a, a set period when the preaching would then end. Look at verse 21 and 22. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come? Jesus is informing them that he will continue to be around, but that time is coming to an end. Jesus is talking about time, talking about minutes, hours. He's not limited by time, but we are. There will come a time, an hour, where there'll be no time left, where preaching will end. And Jesus is warning them that he will not be with them forever. And with Jesus' warning, there are four responses by the Jews here in verses 21 through 29. These four responses were detailed out in John MacArthur's commentary on John, and I appreciated how he, he separated them. So I'm gonna use his outline here, his list, and I'll, although I'm gonna give a different title than he does. But the first reason, the response of the Jews, the first one, the Jews will miss heaven because they are self-righteous. The Jews miss heaven because they're self-righteous. In verses 21 and 22, I just read it. Jesus just finished telling them that he would no longer be with them, that he was leaving. And this is a repeat of what he just said in chapter 7, verses 30 through, 33 through 35, when he says that he was going to a place where they couldn't come. And he's warning them again of what is about to happen. Time is running out. And what's the response in verse 22? Well, the response is, well, maybe Jesus is committing suicide. He, he must be, actually, because if he's going somewhere where we can't go, that's only hell. And the common thought at that time was that suicide was the worst sin, and thus it meant instant hell for the person. You know, they have enough smarts to realize and believe that they could possibly miss heaven. No, not them. It's impossible, they think. They've obeyed the law. They've done everything. And they've deluded themselves into thinking that they could earn heaven by their works. Self-righteousness is a deadly deception. They, they couldn't even consider the thought that they might not be going to heaven. For them and their system, they were a shoe-in. So when Jesus declares that he's going somewhere where they cannot go, their mind only races to one conclusion, it must be hell. Because in their minds, their tickets are already punched for heaven. Their minds are, I'm a Pharisee, I'm in. Translated down to 2016, I'm a Christian. My parents were Christians, my grandparents were Christians. It's been handed down. I'm in. Or I'm a pastor. I'm in. I mean, I wear a tie every week. I'm in. I'm an elder. I've served here for a decade. I'm, I'm in. Matthew 7 has some sobering words. Matthew 7, 21 and 23 not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's, it's not what you know or what you do. It's who you know and what he did. They miss it. Their, their self-righteousness that just is brimming to the top in their lives, they miss it. They think they can earn their way. And he says in this verse, they will go on looking for the Messiah. They'll go, go on seeking the Messiah and they won't find him. They will continue to search for the one. In fact, they're continuing to search today. Jews looking for the one. And he's not there. Why? why? Why won't they find him? 
Well, they don't find him because it was Jesus. It was always Jesus. And they missed him. Secondly, the Jews will miss heaven because they're earthbound. Look at verse 23. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Jesus refuses to even acknowledge their ridiculous claim that he might commit suicide. Instead, he further preaches to them their need for a savior. He simply teaches them where he came from and where they came from, where they reside. Jesus is emphatic in this statement. You are bound to earth. I am bound for heaven. I am not of this earth, but you are of this earth. He's saying you find your meaning. You, you find your purpose, your identity here on earth. Jesus says, my identity is, is not wrapped up in this planet, but in heaven. And Jesus is informing them you, that your minds are so totally absorbed in the things of earth, that your lives are so totally absorbed in the things of earth. And Jesus is making a, a distinction between them and him. There's a huge gulf between the two. Jesus comes with a kingdom mindset. He's on a mission to redeem his people, to buy them back from the slave market of sin. And these leaders are not. They are bound up in this world, unable to see and understand the future that awaits them. And, and right, J.C. Ryle says of the bound up in this world, he says it's an inseparable connection by tastes and aims and affections of this world and nothing else but this world and it's the character of one utterly dead and graceless who looks at nothing but the world and lives for it. And so the question is, where is your identity found? Is it only found here on earth? You earth bound. What are you living for? Have you asked yourself that question this week? And I mean this week because we need to ask ourselves on a regular basis. Am I living for just this planet? Where do I find my priorities this week? Is it, is it bound right here? Jesus talks about this multiple times throughout the Gospels. The one in particular is Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, 19 and 20. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where, where thieves break in and steal. Verse 21, this is the key. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where are you Laying up treasure. Is it in Wells Fargo? Heard they've had some problems lately. Is it your bank? Is it your home? Your career? Is it where your, where your treasure is? I mean, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. We strategize and plan for our financial future, and I believe we should, and being a good steward of what God has given us, most definitely. But folks, let me remind you, there is a future that awaits us as believers that has nothing to do with money. And Jesus says, that is what treasure really is. It's not money or things. It never was and never will be. It's people. People are worth more than stuff. We know this. We, we say this. But do we live this way? Are we earthbound or heavenbound? Meaning, are, are we consumed with only things that are on earth? Are we consumed with things that are much, much more important than things on earth? 
You know, you've probably heard it said before of someone that's, someone that's so heavenly minded they're of no earthly good. Folks, that's rubbish. That's junk. It's not biblically accurate. No, be so heavenly minded so that you will be of earthly good. And that's what Jesus is saying to them here. You're, you're of this planet. You only get this. And Jesus says, you need to be of that. Thinking of that. And the, and the reason is, the point of all of it is verse 24, the simple truth that people will die in their sins unless they believe and trust in the Savior. There's no working your way to heaven. And our job is to not hold back on the good news. To not, to not hold it in, to hoard it to ourselves. We can't. It's, it's good news, right? Do you, do you believe that it's actually good news? Is it the best news you've ever heard? I mean, it should impact us in some way. The news that a sinner caught and, and troubled in sin and, and no, no way of getting out can be saved, can be redeemed, can be brought out of that. It's the, it's the best news the world has ever heard and, and we hold on to it. We, we, we think that it's gonna get out there without us. And I pray, I pray that for us as a church, we, we understand this, we grasp hold not only of the gospel, but it affects all of our life. That it just comes out. That we shouldn't have to struggle when we talk about the gospel because we talk about it. We think about it. We're, we're dwelling on the good news of who he is and, and what he's done. And we're not earthbound, we're, we're heavenbound. We, we understand that. That's what fuels us. That's what drives us in this earth. So the Jews were self-righteous. The Jews were too worldly, too earthbound. Third, the Jews will miss heaven because they're unbelieving. And that's verse 24. And, and that's the, the greater theme we see throughout the Gospel of John. Belief. Unbelief ruins men. And not to choose life means you choose death. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Basically, faith is trust. Believing is trusting in Christ more than ourselves. It's more than just even an intellectual understanding of Christ. You know, what we think of Christ is, is of paramount importance. And what we and we can think that he's the greatest of teachers, that he's the kindest of men who ever lived, that we can think that he's sinless and dwell upon the thought of his bravery, and we can think that he's honest and truthful in all things, and, and we can idolize Jesus, we can pray to Jesus, and we can do all, all of that and still not believe that he is our Savior, my Savior. We can be so passionate about, about Jesus and yet miss our need for him. You can spend years studying the Bible and yet miss the gospel. Several years ago, a number of years ago, Dr. Gordon A. Ailes, a noted chemist and the man who pioneered the development of insulin for the treatment of diabetes, died of that very disease. Think about that. The man who pioneered the development of insulin to treat diabetes died of diabetes. And his friends who were closest to him came to one of two conclusions. Either he did not know he had the disease or he purposely neglected to use the remedy. What irony. The man who knew more about the cure for diabetes than anyone else in the world dies from diabetes. And the same is for you here this morning. You can know all about Jesus Christ. 
You can study, you can read, you can memorize scripture, you can intellectually understand all of the arguments. But unless there comes belief and trust in Christ to receive the cure for sin's disease, you will die in your sins. To be a Christian is not just to give intellectual assent, to not just have all the right answers. It's to believe that God is holy and that there's no sin in him. And in that belief and understanding, we believe that we're not holy. We're we're plagued with sin. We're under the bondage of sin and no way of rescuing ourselves, and that bothers us. It really bothers us. We, We mourn over that. And then we believe, we we trust that Christ is the answer, that he is the one who defeated sin. And he took our sin upon himself when he went to the cross. He died for our sins on that tree. And three days later, he rose again to life. And we respond in faith and we trust Christ. Knowing that we cannot save ourselves. That we cannot earn our way to heaven. It's only through the shedding of blood of Jesus Christ on the cross that we can live with him forever for all of eternity. And through that knowledge as Christians, we're mortified when we sin. We we seek not to sin. We still live in the flesh. But our goal, our aim is to not to continue in that because we know what sin costs. That is the gospel. And the Jews had plenty of opportunities to turn from their sin and turn towards the Savior who stood before them on many occasions. But as MacArthur says, the jailer holding them captive in unbelief was their own obstinate ignorance. And at least the fourth one. The Jews will miss heaven because they are willfully ignorant. They miss heaven because they're willfully ignorant. Look at the last few verses of this section. Verse 25, so they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They didn't understand. He'd been speaking to them about the Father. And so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. They began with the same question, formatted in the same way, multiple times. Who, who are you? Jesus is patient. The same. They, they don't get it. To them, Jesus is making some outrageous claims because of their unbelief. They just really couldn't grasp their willful ignorance to understand. They couldn't grasp what he was. They were blind to see that this was their long-awaited Savior right before them. The answer to all the dilemmas of life, standing right next to them. And Jesus had been clear on who he was since the beginning of his ministry. And Jesus isn't holding back. He says, I have much to say about you. There's there's yet more. And their willful ignorance is mounting. And Jesus again displays his ministry in connection to the Father. It's it's God the Father that sent him. It's it's his message that he brings. And the the thrust of 26, verse 26, is kind of hard to understand. So this is the best translation that I came up with. I have many things to say concerning you and to judge, but in spite of of your vehemently uttered rejections and your display of unbelief, what I shall say is true because he who sent me is true and what I have heard from him, these things I speak to the world. They are willfully ignorant and they do not understand that Jesus was even talking to them about the Father. They, they miss it. And Jesus doesn't leave him there though because he gives them a view forward of what was to come, of of what all this ministry was really about. Verse 28, so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. 
Jesus mentions again that he'll be lifted up. He said it earlier in John chapter three, verse 14, where, where he says, as, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. It all, it all points to the cross. All of his preaching, all of his ministry, all that he's done is pointing to the cross. And all of Jesus' preaching, all that he had done would mean nothing without the cross. It would be empty words without the cross. And he continues to point them back to the cross. To the forward, actually. That he's going to be lifted up. Put on that cross to bring salvation to his people. There, there are no empty words with Jesus Christ. This was his mission. And he would not be by himself on his mission. John says in verse 29, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus had a clear mission, the cross. And Jesus had a close and intimate connection to the Father who was behind all that Jesus was doing. And, and God does not and will not forsake his messenger. Jesus was never left alone by the Father. And look what happens here in the midst of this discussion, how this passage ends here in verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Many believed in him in that moment. And even pointing back to verse 28, that when they would see him lifted up, then you will know that I am he. Looking forward to that day of Pentecost, when over 3,000 would come, they would realize, it would click for some that recognize this is the Christ. He is the one. And they repented and trusted in him. So what do we do what do we do with these verses? You know, the, the so what here. We've, we've heard, we've studied, we've heard preaching on it. What do we do with these verses? The first thing is for everyone to understand every man, every woman is a sinner and we're faced with two choices. To embrace and trust in Christ and have light for life or reject Christ and walk in darkness. There is no middle path. And Jesus' coming to earth is forcing you to make a decision. You, you cannot sit idle by and hope for the best. Jesus has given us a promise in this passage. He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the very fact that Jesus is the light means that our world is, is shrouded in moral and spiritual darkness. And left to ourselves, we cannot overcome the darkness. So if you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Christ, repent and turn to him, to the light. He is the light of life. And for, thus, the, for those of us here this morning that are believers, recognize in this passage that time is short. Jesus mentions this a few times in the verses this morning. Time is short. And the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. There is, there is no afterlife salvation, no matter what cults say. This is it. And there's no better way to spend your life than to preach the gospel. It's true. You know, there's, there's, there's few, there's, there's a very few that leave as missionaries and there's very few that are pastors and elders. But for the millions that sit in the seats every week, this is your job. It's not simply to exist. It's to preach the gospel. That's what he's called you to do. In the world and in the life that he's put you, that's your job. And so I ask, I'm going to step on your toes again. Who are you preaching the gospel to? And can I suggest, if you haven't started, to start with the inner circle, the, the inner circle and move your way out, the family, moms, dads, brothers, sisters. Start there. 
Moms and dads, your preeminent ministry first is to your kids. They are your mission field. God placed them in your home as your mission field. So don't stop preaching the gospel to them. Do it daily with grace and with love and hope and perseverance and patience. Talk about the gospel in the midst of discipline. And, and as parents, it's hard sometimes, right? You're gonna be honest with me? You're, you're frustrated with your kids, but what do they need? They need hope out of the situation. And we have that through the gospel. So set aside, I'm speaking to myself here, set aside your personal agenda and look again of what the hope is. That they understand and live out the gospel. We talk about the gospel in our homes. So for those of you that have no kids at home, who is the inner circle that you need to share the gospel with? Is it mom and dad that live 20 miles away that have never heard that have rejected the gospel? Don't give up on them. Preach the gospel. Talk about the gospel. Make it a weekly practice. They might hang up on you. I don't, I don't know how your parents are. But that's the inner circle. Start there. And in your families, rehearse the treasures that we have in God. Remembering who he is. Don't ever grow cold of this. And after your faithfulness, move out to the other, the next ring outside of the circle. To, to neighbors and coworkers. Be bold this week to, to talk about the gospel. And you think, maybe how do I do that? Well, here's one instance. Go to your coworker this week and say, you know, I heard a, a passage this morning from my pastor, John 8, 12. Have you ever heard this passage, this, this verse? Just pick one. Say, can I read the verse for you? Can I share with you? John 8, 12 preaches itself, okay? So if you're worried about what to say, it does it for you. And then start the conversation and pray and pray and pray. Pray that God would open their hearts to receive the gospel. If you're faithful in that circle, sometimes God allows you to move outside of that circle. To go across town or the state or to Togo. Can you guys use some more in Togo? Togo. There's like four billion people that have never heard in this world. They've never heard. Start in the inner circle and move out. And remember throughout the, your conversations, don't shrink back from warning people. Jesus warned people. He showed love by warning them of their impending doom. J.C. Ryle said, to shrink from telling men that except they believe they will die in their sins may please the devil, but it surely cannot please God. Don't, don't shrink back. We preach the gospel, and that is a hard truth for many. Men, men do not long to hear this hard news that they're sinners and they desperately need a savior, but folks, they need to hear it. Their eternity depends on it. So preach the gospel. If you thought you were going to leave without me quoting Spurgeon, you're wrong. Charles Spurgeon has said, the invitations of the gospel are invitations to happiness. So it's not all doom and gloom. He says, in delivering God's message, we do not ask men to come to a funeral, but to a wedding feast. It's not all the doom and gloom. It's what they understand and get. And it's amazing. That's what makes the good news good. And as we go, as we're faithful in our service, we're sent with the promise that God goes with us. Remember verse 29, he says, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And our aim in this life that God has given us should always be to do things that are pleasing to the Father. That's what our aim should be. So as you go, as you leave, and you're leaving a place of encouragement and hope, a light of a body of Christ, you're leaving to go back into darkness this week. Remember, God goes with us, and he sent you, and he walks with you. You don't go by yourself. You don't preach your message, you preach his. 
that he is the light of the world. And as we leave this place, I pray that we'll remember that, that we'll head into this dark world and be faithful in the pursuit to honor God with our lives. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the challenge of your word on my life and in my heart. And God, I confess to you this morning before this church my lack of pursuit of people in the gospel this week. Of moments that I let pass by where I wasn't bold. And God, I ask that you would embolden me to go and be faithful in the task to share the gospel. I pray for those of my brothers and sisters seated here this morning that have the same charge, the same task. I pray that they will remember that. I pray that as they leave this place and and the the worries and the, the responsibilities of life come back into their mind, I pray that they would be able to sort through that but not forget their job. Do not forget why you've left them here on earth. And may they be faithful in their proclamation of the gospel. May they be bold. And may you open up hearts and minds to understand and to receive. God, we ask for fruit. We ask that more would come to know you, would choose to live their lives for you, and that we would have the pleasure of of being a part of that ministry. I pray for those that are seated here this morning that do not know you, that have maybe attended and walked in churches for years and decades, but have never turned their life from the direction of self-will, self-fulfillment, and instead follow you. And I pray that they will do that this morning. You would bring conviction upon their hearts, that they would turn from their life and turn to you in repentance and trust. God, I pray that you would continue to raise up people to to leave this church for the right reason, to serve you throughout the world. Please use us in that way. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.